0: The scripture for today comes from Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the, pro- the proceeds as any had need, and day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Good job, man. Well, good morning, guys. It is good to see you. It is so good to start our weekend worship. So thankfully you joined us. Sometimes it's I think really a special opportunity to kind of strip away like all the bells and whistles that we love so much and just kind of pull things back and focus on why we are here. We are here to make much of God. And I'm so thankful for our worship team that is willing to do whatever it takes week in and week out to lead our people in worship, whether that's roll out an entire team of musicians uh, to lead us in worship or to kind of scale things back so that we can focus on the things that are most important On Sundays like this, I like to look back at like the early church, like the early, early church, the church that was just getting started and see what was it about that church that set them apart, that put them in position to experience the power and presence of God in their life. They say a spring is most pure at its source. And so the text that we're going to start with today, uh, if you would go ahead and grab your Bibles, Acts chapter 2, you're going to need those Bibles because we're going on quite a journey through the New Testament this morning, Uh, Acts chapter 2, but the text that we're going to start with today gives us a glimpse into the early church, like the early, early, early church, like 10 days after the death, burial, (laughs) resurrection, and then ascension of Jesus, after Jesus ascended back to the Father's right hand, uh, this story takes place. And it's the starting point of the church. His Holy Spirit is poured out on the apostles, and Peter, Jesus' friend, stands up in the presence of all the people gathered in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2, and he preaches what we call the first gospel sermon, though, the good news from start to finish that Jesus lived, that he died, that he was buried in a tomb, that he was raised to life so that we can find life through him, and everything that is included in that gospel message. And the crowd that was gathered there in Jerusalem in the first century, they were cut to the heart. It's what we call conviction. They knew that somehow their sin set them opposite God. And so they asked the same question that we ask. Well, if I'm opposite God because of my sin, what is it that I'm supposed to do? And Peter says in Acts chapter two, verse 38, he says, brothers, just repent. Turn your life over to Jesus. Stop trying to do life your way. Follow him instead and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. For the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that message was so convicting and so compelling and so exciting that Acts chapter 2, verse 40 tells us that 3,000 people accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior on that first, after that first sermon. They gave their life to Jesus, they were baptized for the forgiveness of their sins, the Holy Spirit was given to them. And then we pick up the text in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, that Luke just read, and it says this it says, and. And that and, that conjunction, is literally telling us that this is what happened next. And I love being able to look back in history and see the church getting started. These people that heard the good news and they got excited. So what was the first thing that they do? It says, and they, the church, the baptized believers in Jesus, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, which is Bible study because there was no Bible at that point. So the apostles were speaking forth the word of God and the church gathered together at the very beginning around the word of God so they could hear what he was having to say. And fellowship, they made fellowship, community, discipleship an important part of their regular gathering. And the breaking of bread, as Paul talked about in communion, that was the Lord's Supper central to their faith and to their practice was the Ever present reminder of what Jesus had accomplished for them in the prayers. Verse 43, we kind of talked about this last week. It says, And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And so you have this early church where they hear the gospel and they put their faith in Jesus. They need more of what God has to say, and they need time of prayer, and they need to remind themselves of the goodness and grace of God demonstrated through communion. And God just goes to work in their midst doing what only God can do. And everyone just stood in awe. One of the things that I love most about having a front row seat to watch God work is we have an ever-present opportunity just to stand in awe of God, just to watch him work in our life and through our church. Verse 44, says, and all who believe were together, they had all things in common. Keep note of that. We'll come back to it in a minute. Verse 45, it says, And they, the church, they were selling their possessions and their belongings, and they were distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, attending together in the temple courts, which was corporate worship, breaking bread in their homes, which was close-knit community groups, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. They were praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord Added to their number, the Lord added to the church every day those who are being saved. Man, when I read this text, I cannot help but stand in awe of God. And then there's a, a part of me, something stirs within me that will like longs to kind of get back to the simplicity that led the church in the first century to regularly stand in awe of God and watch God work in their lives. And through their church. And with that in mind, we are kicking off this new year. I know it feels like January's already been six months, but we're still in January, or February now. Started this year with a series we're calling, did January feel like incredibly long to anyone else? I mean, it just felt like it went on forever. We're starting this year, though, with a series called Experience Immeasurably More, where week after week we are extending God's invitation to you to experience more of God. More of his presence and more of his power in your life. Because our goal as we move into 2024 is we want this to be the year that everyone who calls Eastside home and those that God is drawing to himself through his church would experience God for themselves. Quite simply, we want to be a place where people can come to experience God. And the way we say that we experience God, if you're joining us for the first time, are through six simple steps that we call our core values. They're lean in take action, expect miracles, live open-handed lives, cultivate restorative community, and then reflect glory to God. So we've been in this series looking at unpacking each of these six core values that we hold so closely because these are the ways that we have experienced God. As we look around this church family, we have experienced God when we lean in and spend time with Him, when we take action, take steps in obedience, when we expect miracles, when we go through life expecting to see God work. And today, we're going to look at our fourth core value, which we say is live open-handed lives. This core value, of course, like all the others, is not unique to us. It's who God's people were right from the start. Did you catch what the church was doing in the text we just read? In verses 44 and 45, Luke records this. He says, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings, and they were distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Right from the start, the church lived open-handed lives. We say that we live open-handed lives, meaning we don't cling to our things as though they belong to us. Instead, we are generous with our time, our talent, and our treasure, investing in them in the kingdom of God for the glory of God in the good of others. Now, I know that when I share a verse like this, and when I start talking about living open-handed lives, and I use the word generous, in the back of your mind, you start to get nervous because you think, oh, great, it's another sermon on money. And if that's what comes to mind, I would first challenge you, like, when was the last time I preached a sermon on money? It's been a long time. We talk about it when it comes up in the text from time to time because we talk about the things that God sets before us, but I can't remember the last time I set out to preach a sermon specifically on money. But if, and and, and here's the truth, this isn't a sermon on money at all. If you stick with me, I'll prove it to you. But here's the truth. Money makes a great illustration and it's an easy and honest indicator of how we view our life. Our money makes a great illustration, and it's an easy and honest indicator of how we view our life. Because here's my conviction, or here's what I've learned, that it's easy to be generous with things that don't belong to us, isn't it? Like if you're sitting at a restaurant and maybe you're sitting eating by yourself or it's just you and a friend and you're at a large table with many extra chairs and someone comes up to you and they say, hey, are you using that chair? Like, no, I'm not using it. Can I borrow it? Sure, take it. It's not my chair. There's like no skin. It's just easy. Take it. Take them all. It's easy to be generous with things that are not our own. I saw this on display a few weeks ago with my uh, oldest daughter. She's just over four years old, and she's in preschool. And one of the homework assignments that I'm convinced the teachers assign to the parents every week is that our daughter has to take an item for show and tell that corresponds with the letter they're studying that week. And so it's really up to my wife and I. We're always asking my daughter, like, you know, what would you like to bring? We're trying to rack our mind. Well, what do we have that starts with this letter? Well, a few weeks ago, the letter was M. And so I asked my daughter, what would you like to take for show and tell it starts with M? And she said, you know, like a monkey. It's like, well, we don't have a monkey. And she said, you know, I know, Daddy, money. Like, that's great. We've got money. And so uh, we're on our way to school. It's like I kind of put it out of my mind on our way to school that day. I took my wallet out, and I just handed it back to her, mistake number one. And I said, this is daddy's money. Would you pull a dollar bill out of my wallet and you can take the show and tell? And to be completely honest, there wasn't a ton of money in there. There's like a, a few $1 bills, maybe a 5 a $10, a 20 But in the back, I always keep 100 just in case. $100 used to buy dinner for me and my wife, not so with this market these days. But nonetheless, I was keeping the back there to keep me from having to wash dishes. And so my daughter takes all the bills out of my wallet. And I turned around and said, What are you doing? She's like, Well, I'm gonna use this for show and tell. I said, no, no, one dollar. Well, she says, I want to take money. I said, Well, you are taking money, one dollar. And she said, and then she said this. She says, and then after I'm done showing everybody, I just want to give it to my classmates. And I thought, absolutely not. That is my money. <laughs> so she went to school with one dollar. She but anyway, my point is this: it's easy for a toddler or for us to be generous with things that don't belong to us. Just give it away. It's not ours anyway. Well, here's the thing. If that is true of finance, it's true of the rest of our life. Because when we put our faith in Jesus, our life is no longer our life. Here's what I mean. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. The apostle Paul writes a letter. In fact, he writes a couple letters to a church gathered in the first century city of Corinth. The apostles' teaching showed up in the form of a letter. The church gathers together. They open the letter. They're reminded of God's goodness and grace. And they get to this point in the middle of his letter, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where Paul writes this. He says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? So before we even get to where I want to go, I love when the apostle Paul asks questions like this. Do you not know Because in the back of my mind, I'm reading this for the first time. I was like, no, I didn't know that. That's pretty profound. That when I put my faith in Jesus, he not only forgives me of my sins, but he gives me his Holy Spirit to dwell inside of me. But Paul just thinks it's so obvious. I'm just going to be like, agree. There's no room left here for objection. Do you not know, church, follower of Jesus, that your body, your physical body is a temple of the Holy Spirit of God who lives within you, whom you have from God? But then he says this. He says, you are not your own. And I, at some point, had circled that in my Bible, and I come back to it over and over and over again to the Christian. He says, do you not know that you are not your own? You were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. He says that when you put your faith in Jesus, you, who you are, when you accept the work of Jesus on your behalf to draw you close to God, no longer belong to you. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. You were bought by God with the blood of his only begotten son. You belong to God. And here's the thing I would say. If something is stirring within you that makes it feel uncomfortable, like that's a good thing. It is a good thing because when you and I lived our lives our way, we made a mess of our lives. You remember those days when we did whatever felt good or sounded good or smelled good or tasted good? Like we made a wreck of our lives indulging in sinful desires. And when we were owning our lives, we, we, we struggled to own up to the mess we were making. But when we put our faith in Jesus... He gives his life for our lives so that our life belongs to him. Here's the good news. If you still belong to yourself today, if you've never put your faith in Jesus, you can give your life to Jesus today because the price has already been paid in full. When Jesus was nailed to a cross and the blood began to flow from his nail-pierced hands in a way that is more marvelous than we're able to wrap our minds around, That sacrifice counted for your sin and my sin. The sin we've committed in the past, the sin we've committed before church this morning, the sin we'll commit when we pull out of the parking lot, and the sins until we meet Jesus. That his sacrifice paid for our sins. So then no matter who we are or who we were, we can accept the payment made on our behalf. And when we put our faith in Jesus, our life is no longer our own. It now belongs to God. It changes everything about who we are. Later, the Apostle Paul would write a letter to another church, this one gathered in the first century city of Galatia. If you're new to the Bible, we have it preserved for us in the New Testament book of Galatians. Paul says to them, reflecting on his own testimony, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I love how Paul just says the same thing over and over. He says, I've put to death. Obviously, he wasn't speaking literally. It'd be hard to write this letter if he'd been nailed to a cross. But he was saying, symbolically, just like Jesus was crucified, I have killed my own way of life, my old way of life. It is no longer I who live, but it is now Christ who lives in me. The life I live in, the flesh, in this body, everything I have and everything I am, I now live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. God gave everything up for us. We give our life back to God. The life I now live, I live in the flesh. It's a consistent message all throughout Scripture. One more passage, Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. Paul says to the church in Colossae, he says, if then you have been raised with Christ, so he's writing to the church, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. And so he's saying, if God has raised you from death to life, start thinking about the things that God thinks about. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. And I think one of the most powerful statements in the Bible is this, when Christ who is your life appears. You also will appear with him in glory. Like he says, when you put your faith in Jesus and someone looks at you, they no longer see you. They see Jesus, which again is good news because they see his righteousness. They see his grace and his mercy and his work on our behalf, that he paid the sin debt that we ran up out of our selfish ambition that we could never settle. They don't see that debt looming over our heads. They see the generously bestowed grace of Jesus. When Christ, who is your life, appears. When I read this, I think it's interesting when people, quote unquote, put their faith in Jesus and they go on living their life like it's their life to live. And they treat Jesus more like he's something they add to their life than their life itself. This doesn't make any sense He is our life. And here's the thing, this is the best way to live life because this is how we get to share God's glory in this age and the age to come, which is eternally more than we could ever buy or build on our own. And so I know that's several different scriptures, and they all kind of say the same thing, but here's what I want us to, to land on before we even move into application is we always start with the goodness and the grace of God. Right, like you didn't show up at the start of the year and the sermon was on live open-handed lives, be generous with your time, your talent, your treasures. We started with this is who God is. This is how he invites us to a, a relationship with him when we lean in. This is how he encourages us to walk with him as we take action. This is how we get to watch him at work in our lives and through our church. But if that's how God has worked, then our life is no longer our own. And it's easy to be generous with that which is not our own. It's easy to live open-handed Lives. I want this conversation, this understanding of God's word to be much bigger than just give more generously. But we recognize who has ownership of our life. So what does it look like to live open-handed lives? It looks like this. We live open-handed lives when we are selfless with ourselves and our stuff because Jesus was selfless enough to save us from our sins. We live open-handed lives when we are selfless with ourselves and our stuff because Jesus was selfless enough to save us from our sins. So the life we now live, we live by faith in the Son of God. Uh, I'd like to share one more primary passage of Scripture with you. And if I could invite you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. We're going to spend really our instruction time in this one passage. We'll have some other references that if you want to take notes of, the words will be on the screen. I was studying this text this week, and I was thinking, like, how do we take this home? And this passage has continued to come to mind. The Apostle Paul writes again to a church in the first century gathered in Philippi these words. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. I want you to, actually, I want you to stop. I want you to think about, like, what would it be like if you were receiving this letter in Philippi in the first century from the Apostle Paul? And you hadn't had a word from God in a long time, and this letter shows up. And the preacher in the church of Philippi would stand up and he'd say, We got a letter from the Apostle Paul, and here's what he has to say. He would say, So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, have you been encouraged by Christ? On a day where you were down and discouraged, that your courage came from Jesus? If there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort from his love. The love of God ever comforted you during a difficult, Season at home, or the loss of a loved one, or facing an illness—comfort from His love. There's any participation in the Spirit? Is the Holy Spirit gone to work in your life? And have you seen Him start to overflow from your life? Any affection and sympathy? If so, He says, "Complete my joy by being of the same mind." How you know Paul's a pastor? If if God has worked in your life, then I have the same love. Be full accord in one mind. And and here's how Paul always presents the gospel. He starts with the gospel. Now, the gospel changes everything, and it changes our lives, and it changes how we live our lives. It changes how we view ourselves and the way we view our stuff. But like this, he always says, we start with the good news of Jesus. This is why we put these core values in a particular order on purpose, because first and foremost, we want you to experience the goodness and the grace of God in your life. We want you to experience his presence and his power. But if his presence and if his power has made an impact on your life, it changes the way we live our life. Paul would go on and say this, verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. I want us to think about this for a second. This might be an opportunity for us to do a little word study. Because when we read these things, we're going to think, I don't know if Paul meant this. Maybe something was lost in translation because this seems like it's really hard. But so I did some word study for us because Paul wrote this letter, of course, in ancient Greek. And so the Greek word for nothing means nothing or no thing, nothing. That's what it means. And Paul literally says, I want you to do nothing. Nothing from selfish ambition. Selfish ambition speaks to our what? It speaks to our motive. He's not just talking about our actions. He says, I don't want this, the selfish motives of your life to overflow from your life or conceit where you're making much of yourself, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. What does this mean? This means that when we are deciding how we are to live, we don't start with what I want. I hear that all the time, and it's fair. It's the way we're trained to think by our culture. I want to go here. I want to go there. I want to eat this. I want to eat that. I want to live like this. I want to live like that. I want to live with them. Like, and the list goes on and on. The truth is, when someone starts an argument or rebuttal with, this is what I want, I instantly lose interest. Because that's not who we're called to be. And I'm too humble to say, well, do you know how many things I do that I don't want to do so more people can meet Jesus? Like, there's a lot of things that you and I do that we don't want to do. In fact, I would suggest that everything that adds real value, certainly everything that adds eternal value to my life started in something I didn't want to do, like start a church from nothing. But God calls us to do what is good for us, brings glory to him, and is good for the people around us. Verse 4, I think, offers a little bit of clarity. He says, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. So what this tells me is, Paul says, we can look to our own interests. Of course we can consider what we want. Those desires are real, but those desires don't decide what we do. Because God has a way for us to live. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And the way that God calls us to live is to look at how we can affect people around us for the glory of God. Like give us eyes to see. In fact, I was writing my sermon this week and I was saying like one of the challenges I want to set before our church is to pray this prayer that God would give us eyes to see things as he sees them, to see outside of ourselves and see others. But this morning I was reminded that our, our eyes work perfectly fine, that we see other people all the time because I get one bad haircut and no less than 20 of you questioned me about it on the way into church this morning, okay? Like I went to a new lady, you're like, man, it's awful short. You know, it's like, I get it. It'll grow back, I hope. Uh, but anyway, like we have, we have eyes to see what's taking place around us. The question is, are we looking for opportunities to serve them? Jesus would say that we love him when we love one another. Now, here's the other thing I wanted to clarify. Because I've often read verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition and thought, man, I can't do anything that I want to do. And that's not what Jesus is saying. And he's certainly not saying that we have to do everything that everyone wants us to do because not everyone died for us. But he's saying that we do serve others and looks outside of ourselves as his Holy Spirit leads. And sometimes I want to serve others the way that God is leading me to serve others. And sometimes it's the last thing that I want. But as we love God, we look for opportunities to love others as God leads Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Then he goes on, in the back of our minds, we're thinking, I mean, that seems a bit extreme, doesn't it? Well, he goes on to give Jesus as the example. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And what Paul is saying is I'm only asking you to do was only possible for you to do in Jesus. To think not of what you want, but of how God is at work. And you know how I know that Jesus didn't want to go through everything? Because we know his prayer and his final moments. God, if there is any other way for you to accomplish your purpose in this world, please bring it to fruition. It shows me that it's okay to bring our requests to God as long as we come humble enough to hear what he has to say. Because in his mo- moment of most humility... Jesus saved our souls for eternity. So with that good news in mind, how do we put others first? I want to suggest a few few ways. And every once in a while, if you've been with us for a while, you know that I like to honor our recovering Baptists with three-point sermons that all have the same letter. So we honor God with our time, our talent, and our treasure. Tyler gets really excited back there when I say the three T's of, you know, being generous. Three T's for living a selfless life. We honor God with our time. How do we use our time? It's a limited resource, and I put it up first because it might be the thing we cling to most closely, which is ironic because we're quick to waste time, but we only waste time on the things we want most. How do we use our time? We use it, making the most of it, for the, so other people can experience Jesus. Like, if you really wanna see the benefit of your time, use your time so other people can experience Jesus. Um, Uh, Ephesians chapter five, verse 15 and 17. These will be quick coming on the screen. Paul says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Paul would say, time is a limited resource. How can you be wise in the use of your time to make the most of your time? The best answer of that is to help people see who Jesus is because when time runs out, For those who don't know Jesus, eternity without Jesus is coming. So if that's time, how do we use our time to make the most of our time? It might look like this. It might look like as a parent at home, you make the most of your time when you lead your kids to experience God for themselves. Family prayer time, gathering for dinner time so you can talk about God's goodness and grace in your life. Every night when my my wife texts my daughter and she asks her, what are three things you're grateful that God did in your life today? And I've instructed her that the first one should always be daddy, right? No, but the point is like three things. What is she doing? She's using that moment in time to point my daughter towards God. Make the most of your time. Use it at home, use it at church. There's plenty of opportunities to use your time to make a difference here at Eastside. And what I love about when we invest time here as a community is it's like a multiplication effect. We all come together with the little bit of time we have and what God does in our midst is changing the eternal trajectory of people's lives. I think about this, I think about like Dale and Craig who are the first people on the scene every Sunday to lead our setup team. I don't know if you know this or not, but the pipe and drape isn't here when we arrive on Sunday morning. It smells like middle schoolers, there's tables in the way. Uh, We can usually find evidence of what was for lunch on Friday when we show up on Sunday. But these two guys, who let's just say are in the, uh, the prime of their life, show up to set up. This week, I was, I was humbled when they said, hey, you know we're setting up on Sunday, but uh, would it be okay if we restarted that sign set up ministry on Saturday? And so the Saturday mornings, they're out putting out signs all around town, inviting people to worship with us because they know that what happens here changes the eternal trajectory of people's lives. When you look at your calendar and evaluate your schedule, where are you spending your time? We start our week in worship, of course, but we spend the rest of our time making a difference for God. Uh, The next thing is our talent. You are a talented person. Did you know that? Of course you knew that, because that's like what everyone says. Everyone's talented. But God gave us specific talents for an eternal purpose. Hear what Paul writes to the church in Rome. He says, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought, but to think of himself with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body, we have many members and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one in body, Christ, and individually members of one another. What he's talking about is the church. Like when you look around this church, we all have different skill sets, we all have different talents, we all have different gifts, but we all have gifts. Verse six, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. And then he says this, let us use them. And I like that Paul in the first century had to encourage people the same way we do today, that we have these incredible gifts. He would say like, if it's prophecy, if it's teaching the word of God, use that in proportion to your faith. If it's service, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's exhorting, then exhortation. The one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Whatever gift God has given you, use it for the glory of God and the people around you. Do you know like... I was researching this week. The United States, Americans have $21 billion in unused gift cards at home. 21 billion. So if you spent your hard-earned money on a gift card for someone this past Christmas, the chance is it's in a junk drawer somewhere. Just wait, like bad, bad, bad investment, isn't it? $21 billion in unused gifts. The best investment we can make of our time, and our talent. It's invested in the kingdom of God. Use what God has given you so that others can glorify God. And here's how we play it out at Eastside, just to be completely honest with you. There are some things that we just do because we love the Lord, and we have to create an environment every week for people to come and worship. Like, I don't know if anyone has the gift of pipe and drink. Well, with the exception of Derek, like that guy can set up these pipe and drape with like laser-like focus. There's never one crooked or out of place. That guy's incredible. But most of us aren't gifted in pipe and drape, but we can set it up and we can tear it down. We can put chairs out and we can pull them in so that every week, as God draws people to himself, they have a place to come and worship. And our expectation is if you call Eastside home that you found a place to serve alongside us. But there really a rewarding place is when we get to serve God in our gifts and with our talents. Like, what has God uniquely gifted you to do? We want to help get you in position. If it's greeting with a smile on your face, some of you have the gift of smiling. I mean, we could use lobby greeters and hallway greeters because it's kind of intimidating to come to church in a middle school, but you got to get here early. That goes back to time, right? If you have the gift of, of teaching or exhortation, we can get you opportunities to serve up here in kids' ministry, you have the gift of loving on kids, there's no greater investment than investing in the next generation. But God has given you talent and here's the other thing: like the world is not a good judge of talent, just honestly, like we see that all over, like maybe someone at some point in your life has told you you're not good at something like let us be the judge of that. You know, if your mom told you you're not a good singer, you're probably not a good singer. But the truth, is, like the world's not a great judge of talent, as evidenced by the fact that the last pick in the draft from a few years ago is leading a team to the Super Bowl. The guy that almost went undrafted is one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL. The same thing is true of your gifts and talents for the kingdom. And then finally, our time, our talent, and we live open-handed lives when we are generous and selfless, with our treasure. Now, I know I said this wasn't gonna be a sermon about money, and it's not. I expect that if we're faithfully following Jesus, you're giving God your first and your best. We say at Eastside, you give God your first and your best, the first 10% if God has changed your life. What I wanna ask you is, how are you letting God direct the other 90%? God gave you that money. God gave you the ability to earn that money for the purpose for which he's called you. And some of that is living where you live. Some of that is raising the family that God has given you. Some of that is uh, do, investing in the hobbies that God has allowed, gifted you to be invested in. But like, if you're spending a lot of time on the golf course, are you making disciples on the golf course? Like, are you inviting people? If you like to eat, are you inviting people to come with you and having spiritual conversations with them at dinner? Because college kids love to eat. And they'll listen to anything you have to say about God if you'll give them some food. <laughs> what are you doing with the other 90%? God gave that resource to us to invest. And the greatest return on investment is when we invest our treasure in the kingdom. Jesus himself would say, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth because moth and rust are gonna destroy. It's gonna waste away. But lay up for yourselves and the way you live here and the way you invest here, treasure in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy, where thief cannot break in and steal. We'll see the greatest return on investment when we invest in eternity because that greatest return on investment are the people that our time, our talent, and our treasures are taking with us to eternity. The truth is, when we get to heaven someday and we look around and we say the, see these same smiling faces, we think, man, I'm glad I was open-handed in the way I lived here so that we can celebrate forever there. I want to share an illustration with you. It's, it's well-documented. John Piper shared this illustration in a sermon he tiled, titled, Don't Waste Your Life. But he was preaching to his church family, and he said this. He says, Three weeks ago, we got news at our church that Ruby Eliasson and Laura Edwards were killed in Cameroon. Ruby Eliasson was, was over 80, a single lady all her life. She was a nurse. She poured her life out for one thing to make Jesus Christ known among the sick and the poor, in the hardest and, unmost, and most unreached places. Laura Edwards, a medical doctor in the Twin Cities, and in her retirement, partnering up with Ruby. She was also pushing 80 and going from village to village in Cameroon. The the brakes gave way on their car and over a cliff they go. They died instantly. And I asked my people in my church, he says, is this a tragedy? Two women in their 80s, almost a whole life devoted to one idea. Jesus Christ magnified them on the poor and the sick in the hardest places. 20 years after most of the American counterparts had begun to throw their lives away on trivialities in Florida and New Mexico, they fly into eternity with a death in a moment. Is this a tragedy? I asked. He went, to say, it's not a tragedy. I'll read to you what a tragedy is. And he pulled out a page from the latest Reader's Digest. And he said to them, Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she 51. They now live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30 foot trawler, play softball and collect shells. That's a tragedy. That story has stuck with me for years because it's convicting. It's convicting because the American dream is to work as hard as we can work, to save as much as we can save, to cling to it as tightly as we can cling to it so we can try to hold on to it for the few years we might be able to put together after we quit working. I'm not a big fan of seashells, but I wonder like, what am I gonna have to give God as if I could give him anything? When I show up at eternity, man, I hope it's his children. I genuinely mean it. Like I hope when I get to heaven, I've got some good fishing stories and a few good shots that were from the golf course, but more than anything, I hope that I show up at heaven with you and with the people around this city that God is drawing to himself through his church. That when we show up, we're rich in relationships. That we've poured everything out, our time, our talent, our treasures, wisely stewarded, but richly, generously invested in what God has called us to. That I didn't go through life saying, you know what I really want, but what does God want to do in me and through me? Can I set up signs at 6 a.m.? Can I set up pipe and drape in a smelly cafeteria at 7? Can I invite someone into my home at 10 p.m. when they're free so I can tell them about the goodness and the grace of the God who's invited us to spend eternity with him? My life, your life, is no longer our own. We were bought at a price. I share this to you from a place of conviction. This week, I was preparing the sermon. I, I'm gonna be honest, like, I preach on the core value of leaning in and I'm ready because I spend a lot of time with God. I'm, I'm gonna tell him to lean in and take action. I've worked on that. But live open-handed lives is something God is stirring in my life. Time, it's, it's hard to give away time. I got two, two girls and a wife at home and plenty of responsibilities with the church. I don't have a lot of talent, but I can be selfish with the talent I have. Treasure. But when I realize I can give away, it's easy to give away that which is no longer my own, God is changing my heart. And here's the prayer I pray, as in like the last two weeks. God, give me a sense of self-awareness to see how I can be more selfless. Because the truth is, I don't always see it. I see how much my wife and I give and I think, yeah, we're pretty good. We're not making the most of this church and we're giving among the, the highest because we love what God's doing through his church. And I know we're investing our time, we think I'm pretty good. And God just reminds me, I gave everything for you. Don't hold anything back from me. Father, we're so thankful for your goodness and grace. What a privilege it is to gather together with a few friends at the start of every week to make much of you. Father, we pray that as we install these core values into the core of who we are. They become our DNA that is being redeemed in Jesus through the death, the burial, and the resurrection. Father, that you would give us eyes to see how we can be more selfless so that you can work through us. Father, we're grateful for the generous blessings you bestowed upon us. We're thankful that you give us today in time. We're thankful that you've equipped us with talents Father, we're grateful that you've generously given us treasure that we could steward here. But Father, we pray that we would wisely steward it for the glory of God so that when we walk into eternity, we are walking alongside the fruit of our investment here. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.